Greetings and welcome to the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. My name is Federico Ast, CEO of, of Cleros. Thank you for joining us. And um, well, this podcast is about bringing you the latest in legal innovation, legal tech with experts from different fields and beyond. My co-host today is Damian Malvasic. How are you, Damian? Good, good, good. It's a lovely day here in Serbia and very looking forward to our to our guest today, Joe Rosinski. Yeah, our, our guest, uh, Joe Rosinski, is a person who is deep, deep in the innovation in the legal industry. Um, let me tell you a bit about him. He graduated from Providence College with a BA in Economics and Sociology and holds a Master's in E-Commerce and an MBA from the University of Maryland. Uh, currently, Joseph is a legal futurist with Thomson Reuters Legal. He manages a team of technologists for both the large law, corporate and government divisions in the US. And his primary focus is around the future of technology and speaks about legal technology, cybersecurity, blockchain, AI, cryptocurrencies and robotics. So that's a lot of things to cover, Joe. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. Gentlemen, it's wonderful to be here today. So I really appreciate it and look forward to the conversation. And I met I met Joe in like two years ago at a conference uh, in London, a Thomson Reuters conference. And the, the first thing I, I asked, so he's a legal futurist, but the, the, the thing that he's not a lawyer. So you come from a background with more social science, right? Business. And how, how did you, how did you career start? How did you get from your background to what you are doing today? That's a great question. So it's it's a bit of a circuitous path that I took, I think. Um, the way I think about it was that when I was a little, <laughs> going back a little bit, uh, when I was a, a little kid, um, one of the things that I always like to do is try to figure out how things worked. So if, if it was uh, a new game or something that I bought or a new toy that I got, I would actually, after playing around with it, watching it, how, see how it would work, I would probably crack it open. So if it was an electronic toy, let's say it was a Game Boy or something like that, a Nintendo Game Boy. I would play with it for a little bit, say, okay, this is how the buttons work outside. This is how I turn it on, turn it off. But eventually I would crack it open and say, okay, this is the circuitry. This is how this thing actually works. If I alter this and if I broke it, it was always a sad day. But if I did that, I would learn about it. So I've always been able to like dive into something, try to understand it, and then take a step back and look at how does this impact people? How are people using this? You know, what if we made a change to this, this, and this? Eventually got into software. So I started messing around with software, uh, web development, things of that nature. Um, and I've always had an interest in the sciences. So um, watching the environment around us. So like even going into the woods and watching like animals and insects and things of that nature and seeing how they interact, how they work, um, how they strive to survive. And that, believe it or not, has led me down the path of for undergrad doing economics. And that was sort of more sciencey in some respects. But on the other side was sociology and how people interacted, how they worked as groups, the psychology of those groups. Um, and then eventually it spurred me on. I've always been in technology to go for the master's in business just to try to better understand how businesses operate and e-commerce. So I came of age when the internet really started to take off. So building websites and working with companies about how does it make sense to, to build businesses to using this new medium. And I absolutely loved it. And so today, when I came to Thomson Reuters over a decade ago, I was able, I was really lucky at the company to be able to work with 
tons of different groups. I mean, when I started, it must have been like 40,000 employees, got up to uh, 56,000 employees. And if you can imagine, it's like a, a city and there's different groups inside of this city. And we have the opportunity to connect in with each one of them, people that spend all of their days in data science um, or are unpacking um, how the legal industry works. And so I'm able to interact with each one of them, pull that information back, also leverage some of my own thoughts on this and, and push that out a little bit too. So that's where I sit today. Sorry, a little long-winded. <laughs> no, it's we all have a story and yours is really fascinating. Um, and and so how did you start? So in, in legal in particular, like, uh, yeah, in, how did you move to this world of lawyers and... Um, and legal innovation. Yeah, really interesting. So I had the opportunity when I came on board at Thomson Reuters as a, I think they called us technology consultants. And so what our role, primary role was, was to connect with our customers. Um, it might be like a, a DLA piper um, and sit down with them and say, okay, what's happening at the firm right now? What's working? What's not working? And sometimes it was literally, hey, this product or service is not working as well as we'd like, and I might have to fix it. Um, or I'd have to correspond with people internally at the organization as a liaison to make sure that this software or this service was working for them. Um, and then it sort of progressed from there. So once you talk with hundreds, if not thousands of law firms, corporations, uh, government agencies over a period of time, you get a sense for what direction each one of those niches is, is trying to move in. And from an agnostic way, I can say, hey, this is what I'm seeing across the industry. This is what's happening. This is what's going on. And, and then you start to extrapolate out. Okay, I've seen technology within startups and what they're doing or what the financial industry is doing, what the medical industry is doing, which I try to connect with all of them um, separately. And I pull from them what's happening. And then we sort of discuss that, like, this is what's going on here. Can we leverage that within the legal technology world to make changes, positive changes for you as an organization? Um, hopefully that makes some sense. I guess that brings us to the, the, the focal point in your bio when you read it on, on, on Thomson Reuters website, which for me was the most fascinating thing uh, the first time that we, that we had a conversation. And that's uh, the question of legal futurism. For me, like, I mean, just hearing how you're, you know, about your upbringing and about your education, what came to me was was the famous Eric Fromm uh, quote that the best thing a child can do to a toy is to break it, because ah. that is the way that, that early humans explored and, and discovered things and discovered new tools. So I guess that, that that is one aspect of it. And the second that was that was that is very fascinating to me is that you have somehow uh, directed your your education and your professional career to becoming a sort of a professional observer. And that's fascinating to me. You know, one that's thing, a great point. One thing that, that, that came to me as a question from this is, you know, one thing is these, let's say, practicalities of looking at different spaces and how they interact and what might come out of it. But for me, like, what is for you, Uh, being a legal futurist in particular, like what, how, how it's not just a matter of job description, but how do you see this, this idea of working in this space? What is for you legal futurism? So what is, what is it for me? It means um, trying to bridge the gap between what will likely be coming down the road in five years and then creating a sort of an educational component around that. So I've spent probably too much time, which I, I love, um, 
going through the fundamentals of certain types of technology to help people understand it. Because I feel like these people are all way brighter than I am. But if I'm able to, to bring to them, hey, there's a concept that's around the corner. And you as a, uh, a legal professional that's been practicing for 10, 20 years, you know your, your niche, you know your space extraordinarily well. Now, if you're able to leverage this new tool, be it blockchain or artificial intelligence, and understand it and then say, okay, I can now apply my knowledge of the last 20 years towards that. They are in a much better situation to help their clients, uh, to help their own law firms, their corporation, or the government agency to do better work for people that need it at that point in time. So my idea, I really like the way you said that. Um, it's sort of, because I, I guess I am, and I'm an observer. <laughs> so I try to piece together things that I see and I try to impart, if it helps people, try to impart that uh, with them so they can start to really focus in and narrow in on things that make sense for them. You know, um, this is something I, I find also as an entrepreneur in the legal industry. Like, of course, I interact with lots of lawyers. And like lawyers are not trained uh, to, to break things. They are trained to comply and to try to uh, be risk averse and to try to prevent risks. So it's kind of the opposite of what uh, Eric Fromm was thinking of the good child education, right? It's, um, they, are not, uh, I, they are not used to building. They are not used to prototyping. So they, they see this world of um, doing things differently. In Yeah, they were not trained for this. It, and it doesn't come natural. Of course, there are exceptions. But um, but this it's like not something that uh, that comes naturally to lawyers. Um, I, I I wonder how, how do people like see you in the in the industry? Like what what is the the reactions you get from all these new companies? Uh, actually, old companies to which you expose to new technologies and how do they see this? They see uh, these AI blockchain things like something that's going to come and uh, help them or it's just some science fiction futuristic uh yeah things yeah that's a that's a really good question and it's something that i i sometimes grapple with so i would dare say that i've done upwards of 200 talks in the last three years and it's funny because after you finish this talk, and usually they're all in person, except of course now, people will come up afterwards. And I've had people come up and say, yeah, that's amazing. Like that's the concepts, the ideas, that's the direction that we want to move. We know that it's going to take a while. I've had other people say, nope, what you're <laughs> saying I get, but that's like 10 or 20 years out. It's not going to affect the way that we practice. A lot of the attorneys here, the partners here, and I mean, no um, disrespect to anybody, but it's the way that they think. Um, they're here to decide on things that's going to impact the partners over the course of the next year, maybe mm. two years, but they are doing well now. So they're making good money now. And what's going to force them to change? The, the time horizon is so short term, especially for law firms, that it makes it really a challenge to put these ideas out there. Now, if I'm talking to startups, they're like, yeah, we get this. We're, we're totally yeah, on board. And they're pushing the limits. Government agencies, they're like, yeah, they're almost a little bit like law firms, maybe even further down in terms of their perspective. Although if you go to Dubai, they're way ahead of the game. They're leading the industry. They're leading corporations. They're leading startups in concept around this stuff as well. Um, so it does vary. Really good question. I know that you've experienced this a lot yourself, Federico. 
Two questions that I had um, concerning this, you know, one thing that, that, that I've noticed reading a lot about legal tech and recently, especially with, with you know, this, this crisis with, with COVID-19, um, the majority of the things that come out is sort of what is going to happen with the courts, what is going to happen with the legal industry usually just boils down to, you know, remote courts and 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 such things but if we if we move these these trends that i always see is something that is always looking at the short term this is like always looking at the operational things what 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 will change in the post covid world in your mind besides the, the, the these basic you know uh, uh, building blocks just being moved around a little bit in the legal space so you're right i mean there's there's some basics there so that within and I was predicting that it was going to take 10 years before you start to see all of the courts move to video, um, some of the teleconference stuff. It took two weeks to four weeks. And there are in uh, Texas, in the United States, they actually do ju jury pools um, online through video. And that, that was a, a major leap forward. Um, so they were actually able to pull that together. And so besides the video that we're all used to in the teleconference and the written responses that the courts are handling right now, and that was something we all sort of expected would happen at some point. It was pushed into it. It did happen. So the next iteration, what does that look like? Um, I'd say it's twofold. The first, because it's likely to come out within the next 18 months, um, is going to be much more the virtualized uh, VR MR, so the virtual reality, the mixed reality, the augmented reality, because, and the reason why I bring this up, and it sounds a little trite to say, because people go, oh, yeah, virtual reality, you know, it works, it doesn't work. Um, it's kind of gimmicky. It's definitely for gaming. But beyond that, Google, uh, Google, Apple, Apple is going to be coming out within the next 12 to 18 months, um, their own frames, their own glasses that uses sort of that mixed reality. So you're looking through these glasses and you can see everything that's there, your table, your computer, your glass of coffee or your glass of water, your cup of coffee, and it projects things on top of that. Um, mm. It will help us, all of us, as we're now remote, and I will think that that's going to continue to happen because we're probably not going to be back in offices, at least depending on what part of the world you're in, uh, at least in the United States, maybe until a year from now, I would say. The year from now, people will start... Mm going back into offices. So July of 2021, um, you're going to start to see these things used to make it feel like people maybe are tired of Zoom meetings, WebExes, um, the, the Teams meetings, Microsoft Teams meetings. These things will allow you to have your own avatar. There's companies practicing this right now. You, you upload a picture of your face, you're on a whatever fictitious body, but you're around a table. And you're much more engaged and you're looking at people and it's it feels more real. So that's one thing that we're going to see. It's going to creep into the courts as well at some point. That might be a little bit further out, but they're already starting to use some of that for evidence. Um, this is where someone got, uh, God forbid, stabbed and this is their their outline. And you can see, okay, this is the street lights and this is where the car was. And they, they filmed the location right afterwards so the jury could actually see and almost feel what it was like to be there at that moment in time virtually. Um, that was one. The second one I think is definitely, and I talk a lot about this, is online dispute resolution. I mean, how can we make things easier, faster for people, not only just in, um, in Europe and in, in Latin America and the United States, North America, but areas that have much more difficult times in getting access to justice, getting people to... <laughs> 
to travel five hours to get to a court that they may not feel comfortable in um, is a real challenge. So what do we do to try to fix that? Well, you can try to take that online. You try to create a system that allows people to interact fairly um, with with ease, with general ease. Um, and I think that online dispute, dispute resolution is going to be transformative as it's continuing to build. And I've seen a lot of people talking about that, especially over the last five months since we've been in this. Yeah, um, we we had a uh, so fir first guest in the podcast, uh, Colin Rule. So we had the chance to discuss this a lot with him. Uh, and yeah, this is like a movement that started uh, in the 90s. And now it seems it's starting to take some some steam because of, well, innovations such as, I guess, as blockchain, AI. Um, well, and the, the COVID situation, I guess, um, this was a catalyst for, for lots of changes that, that were bound to happen at some point. This is, the courts need to go online because the economy and our lives have gone online, basically. So um, tell, tell, tell us a bit about um, how you see the new technologies. You spoke a bit about virtual reality, but how do you see like blockchain and AI affecting the future of law? So it's a, it's a really good question. I'm trying to, the way that I see, um, let's break it down first um, by, uh, we'll go with blockchain. So with blockchain, I thought honestly that it would take off a little bit faster in the legal world. What we're going to see, I guess, first is um, it's hitting FinTech first. So you have uh, the first iteration that we all have heard of is the ICO, the initial coin offering. And that was all this uh, hoopla that happened in 2017 with people raising lots of money for their companies. And a lot of companies, maybe it wasn't, it was sort of a scam, but there are significant, well, I shouldn't say scam. There's a good number of companies that did this well, did it properly, and they are uh, able to start to grow from that, which is fantastic. That's still bubbling out and we're starting to see how that changes. The next iteration to this is really around um, de decentralized finance. So they call it DeFi, right? And this is the idea that companies are pushing out the ability for you as an individual to loan other people money very easily um, by putting up your own tokens and you get interest on that. So you might get where we're used to like one to 2% interest in the United States. I know it varies around the world. Um, they're offering upwards of 50 to 100% um, interest rates on the money that you put up into these locked accounts that are on the blockchain that's verifying that you have this money, it's up there, it's hopefully secure. Um, it's using smart contracts to make sure that that's up there and that if other people are being lent this money, they're actually getting that back and all the, all the, the mechanisms are there. So DeFi is a huge thing that I'm talking more and more about with lawyers because I think they're a little bit less familiar with that at this stage because it's really started to take off, I guess, within the last six months. But it's been around for whatever, let's say the last 18 months at least. That's one component. Um, the part that I think is slow, a little more slow, is the smart contracts that lawyers are using um, day to day. I don't see too much of that happening. Uh, there are some organizations uh, that are leveraging it and they're having success with it, but it's still early days um, in terms of how that's going to work. Um, on the AI front, you know, as Richard Suskind would say, the the AI that we talk about now and that we all think is going to happen now is happening slower. 
but in the long term, it's going to happen faster than we actually think it will. Um, and more things will happen. So it's more iterative now. We are seeing tools across the board, vendors in the legal tech space that have bit, built tools that are pretty darn good. Uh, e-discovery has been around for forever and you have document sets that AI is calling through looking for specific words or terminologies, concepts. It's breaking that down. It's surfacing it up to people uh, as a subset of the billion documents. Now you have 10,000 documents for humans to go through. Um, but it's getting better. So one of the cool things out there right now is uh, judge analytics. So if you have a judge that has, let's say, ruled on something 100 times, you can look at the language of the judge and who they've um, awarded to over that period of time. And you can look to see whether or not there's some um, consistency with the terminology. And you could basically predict whether the judge is going to choose in your favor um, yes or no, based on their previous um, decisions. So those types of things are creeping in and are somewhat creepy, but are effective when you start to talk about AI. It's very interesting to me when we think about uh, these, I guess, two two apples in a in a uh, in a basket that are blockchain and AI, and they're often connected as these novel technologies that are supposed to improve something or change it. Especially when we speak about the legal field, but it always seemed to me as if, and I might be wrong when I say this, that AI is a more of an optimizing tool and less disruptive than blockchain, which is in its decentralized form, something that puts into question certain certain fundamental principles of the workings uh, in, in, in the legal space. And one of the things that, that we've been faced with with Claros is of course, you know, the way, let's say, if we try to imagine 10 years forward, how these systems would be used and whether they would be used. And one of the main questions that I have with regards in particular to blockchain technology is, and of course, that's a question that, 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 that I would direct to you, is um, compliance. In your mind, will governments uh, 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 support this technology into into law or will they resist it i know that it's an update of mental software first and foremost but it's also a matter of a great number of practicalities that need to be put into use so i think that initially that governments typically uh around the world are a little more trepidatious about it um, if you look at europe i think some countries and um, the data protection act basically they're looking at this and they're a little bit concerned about it because you have something that's immutable. So if you're adding information about people, about rules, whatever the case is, uh, and you have the right to be forgotten, there's a concern around that, right? So you have this idea that, okay, if you have something that's immutable and you're supposed to have the ability to change it or alter it or view it or whatever the case is, that's a concern. So I think there are companies and organizations that are trying to figure out a way to make it so that various blockchains you can alter the information based on what makes the most sense. So creating sort of a rule set that allows for that to happen. Um, Dubai has, so UAE has definitely pushed hard and fast for this. I mean, they were trying to get most of their public information onto the blockchain uh, by 2022. Uh, so now it's supposed to be 60% of that information's up there. So they're gung-ho in that. They really want to do that. Um, in the U.S., they're, I think, a bit more trepidatious about it because they're 
again, it's a lot around education um, and what's happening with that information, who has control over it. That's another huge issue. Is it, when you decentralize something where most of the world is, is acting on something that's centralized, where there is some control, it may not be a perfect system, but that makes it a huge kind of threat um, that completely alters the mindset for how people interact, how they work. Um, and that's, uh, that's something that we're all sort of grappling with. So I think short term, there's going to be a lot of pushback. But long term, as people start to see that there is efficiency, there's benefit, there's clarity. That's a real cool part about this, depending on which blockchain and what project you're working on. There's potential for far more um, transparency into what's happening, what's going on. You know, if you were to have uh, let's use any governments. Uh, I won't, I'm trying, I won't, <laughs> I was trying to pick something. I'll pick like Canada or something, right? So <laughs> in Canada, if you wanted to see which agency was spending money on what components, what they're doing on, I mean, you can dig into that a little bit and sometimes it's hidden, sometimes it's not, but with blockchain technology, you should be able to see where money is going and for what efforts. Uh, I talked about this with uh, the world bank. World Bank has trouble sometimes with once they're they've, they're giving a grant to a particular country, let's say it's in Africa. Once that money's transferred from the World Bank to that to that government, the money is then supposed to be distributed among people or companies or organizations, whatever the case is. Frequently, that money is lost or taken, or so there's there's no straight transparency, and they're working on trying to figure something out. In this instance, where you have almost smart contracts saying, okay, this money's going to you. And once you you establish you've done this, this, and this by this date, then this money goes to this group. And you can kind of track every single component along the way. That's a significant change for, for different people. Let me let me tell you something, Joe. Um, you know, when I started working on decentralized justice, um, what eventually became Claro, so my motivation, so I am from Argentina, you know, and my motivation was, yeah, like how to transform these really corrupt, like legal systems that we have in, in many countries, like in emerging economies in particular, and in, in particular my country, uh, you know, it was, the, the, the legal system was, is so, so corrupt and so, it's little, there is so little transparency. They started to think like, how can we use like technology to, to build this from scratch? Because uh this this requires a complete like overhaul <laughs> and, and we have these <laughs> yeah. new technologies uh that are born in the 21st century for the problems of the 21st century um because this this is it was obvious for me that um like the, the there was a dead end in the traditional legal system uh i'm not saying that this is going to be re replaced by blockchain courts of course but um the the number of um, interactions we have with people are happening mostly online and since COVID, like only exclusively on almost exclusively online right and we need something that is adapted to 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 this new reality um so that that's what that was my motivation in the in the first days to start working on how to apply blockchain and blockchain incentives to transform the justice systems um let me let me take you um a bit to a different um, field. Um, so we have been discussing all of these um, new technologies and new practices, etc. So if you're a lawyer, like in your middle, the mid-career lawyer, 
I, what could you do to adapt to this thing it's, it's coming this wave of change that's coming and it's going to like really affect us in like say five or ten years what, what would you say to that lawyer i would say probably switch jobs no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> i'm totally kidding <laughs> no 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 there is there is going to be i think immense opportunity ahead for attorneys um there's gonna be some shakeups there's no question there's gonna be some shakeups but what i've been talking to attorneys from all levels about for the last bunch of years is around trying to 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 and i mean this again with respect to lift your head up a little bit from what you're doing day to day which i know is uh very challenging work at some times sometimes it might be um <laughs> throwing your head against the wall uh because it's 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 difficult um, the demands are there, no question, but you almost have to pull yourself up and say, okay, what's about to happen over the next five years, maybe 10 years and say, what do I need to learn about? What do I need to understand that's going to have an impact on my clients, on me, and maybe my professional career, as well as my personal life. And take a take a gander at the different technologies that are coming down the road. And I think, you know, Claros is a perfect example. So if you have dispute resolution that's using blockchain, that's pretty much all online, that was it's perfect time for this, right? Um, how could that, how could I as an attorney, one, understand it, but leverage this sort of technology to help my clients um, get to a point where they're better served? better served because fundamentally that's the hope behind what the attorney more than likely went to law school for, to help people, to help um, them get justice for things, to help individuals have a better understanding of what their rights are and, and have them be represented in a perfect way, right? As best as possible. And sometimes, and we're seeing this more, it doesn't necessitate a human being being right there, helping every aspect of it, now there's so many great tools out there that will help customize the experience for an individual as they're going through some sort of trouble in their lives. Um, if it's a dispute between two people, like I didn't, you know, I, I bought this phone online and, you know, it came with a cracked screen. You know, what do I do about that? How do I handle that? Well, there's, there's groups that have come up with solutions that help people work through that. Um, and I think helping the attorneys understand the bigger picture rather than, you know, being so focused on what they're doing day to day that, you know, one day they, they pull their head up and like, wow, I just realized that all this stuff has changed. And if I looked a little bit earlier, then maybe I would have had a better perspective and been really well positioned to help people ahead of the curve rather than being behind the curve. Um, awesome. That's uh, a lot to think about for lawyers. Um just to start wrapping this up, um, uh, you have this all this across the board experience and you see lots of companies, lots of law firms, you speak to lots of lawyers. So what is your final message you can give them in this like uh, changing, transforming legal world uh, of ours? So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good thought. So my my main, the thrust of what I try to talk to firms about is if you are capable in terms of money, and resources. Uh, even if not, I would push the limits a little bit to to fund a little group or have at least one individual on staff who pushes the limits on what's coming, what, what they can be aware of to help the firm, to help educate people, uh, the attorneys, the staff, the paralegals, 
everybody, the CI, everyone to understand what the capabilities that are coming down the road that are just over the horizon to help them get to the point that they are not um, stuck in a rut where they're like, oh, you know what? Everything's been working. We're making good money uh, and not thinking about the future. Because if they're not thinking about the future, there's going to be significant changes over the course, clearly over the next 10 years. I mean, I've even predicted that. Excuse me. Uh, I've even predicted that um, you're going to see significant changes to the numbers of law firms um, and that may tick down uh, over the next 10 years because of efficiencies with tools, with people and what they're working on. You want to be ahead of the curve. You want to be working with these tools, working with startups, if at all possible, with universities um, to help conceptualize your niche, your space and what you can do best to leverage that in accordance with these new technologies to keep pushing, pushing, pushing the future rather than sitting back and, you know, everything's status quo, everything's working well. What's the point for me to even think about changing? Because there's going to be like a wave that comes and I truly believe it's going to be quick. Just as like this pandemic was, there are transformative events that happen in our lives that push us very fast into making decisions. And it'd be great to be positioned in a spot that you are best able to serve your clients and your firm, corporation, or government agency um, in a good spot like that. Excellent, Joe. Um, well, thank you very much for, for coming uh, to our podcast. And um, I hope we will soon be able to have some beer together at some conference. So <laughs> thanks a lot again. Um, and this uh, is um, the Centralized Justice Broadcast. I'm Federico Ast. I am CEO at Cleros, and Damian Malvasic uh, is our, my co-host. And we will see you uh, in our next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. And see you next time. Thank you all. Take care.